0: Take your Bible if you would and join me today in Romans chapter 7 Romans chapter number 7 this was years ago and I was preparing I still remember this although it was years ago I was preparing to come to college and I can remember there were some very distinct thoughts that were crossing my mind that I anticipated when I was going to arrive at Christian College. Now, I I went to Pensacola Christian College and I got here back in the early 80s, 1982. So when I arrived, I made some assumptions and, and I felt like they were pretty safe assumptions. And I do remember these very distinct thoughts as a high school graduate who had recently applied, been accepted to come to a Christian college. And the thought was that when I got on the campus of a Christian college, I was going to be much more spiritual than I was as a high school student. I just remember this thought that I'm going to get on this Christian college campus that I had visited one time for a very brief visit. But I had seen something on this campus that was appealing to me. I had seen people who were living out their faith. And, and they were doing so in a genuine, authentic way. And it resonated with me as a high school student. I, I had already applied to go somewhere else, but I saw something here and I said, that's what I want in my life. So I thought as a high school student, I graduated from high school, I was, I was a, a, a normal high school kid. I was saved when I was 17, and so I'd grown up around spirituality, Christians, and, and yet I wasn't personally a Christian until my senior year, and I came to know Christ, and, and so now I'm going to get on the campus of a Christian college, and my, my prayer life is going to be so much more meaningful. My scripture reading is just, I'm going to want to read the scripture. The way I communicate my love for Jesus is going to just flow far more naturally. So when I get here on a Christian college campus, things are going to be different than when I was back there. The problem is I packed something with me. I brought something from Adrian, Michigan, where I grew up and and where I lived, I brought something with me and it didn't take long for other people to discover that I had something on this Christian college campus that I wasn't quite ready to part with. In fact, it was something that I had had for a long time and I just didn't wanna let it go. It was my flesh I'd become quite comfortable with it. I was, um, I don't know, comfortable in my own skin for lack of a better expression. I knew myself and I knew my desires. I knew my likes, I knew my tastes, so to speak. And I liked my own flesh. And yet I did find that when I got here, some kind of, I don't know, maybe even more intensified battle began. I started to learn, and I was growing, and I was understanding things about Bible truths as a Bible major here on the campus of Pensacola Christian College. So I'm learning a lot, I'm attending campus church services. Our pastor then, Pastor Bob Taylor, would faithfully open the Word, and I would sit under that instruction, and yet I still had this raging battle, and things weren't just naturally happening. In fact, if anything happened, the battle in my own life seemed to intensify rather than diminish. When we start to look at the passage that is before us today, we start to understand that there is something about what you brought to church today that is irredeemable. In other words, it's not that stuff that can be just improved. That it needs a really thorough renovation. It needs some improvement and then it's going to be just fine. It is your flesh and the nature that comes with it. The Apostle Paul begins to write as we find ourselves in the middle of Romans chapter 7 about the battle that is raging within. The title of our message today is Let the Battle begin, because that is exactly where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7. Your Bibles are open there. Let's begin reading in verse number 14. Romans 7, verse number 14. Here the apostle Paul writes, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, that is fleshly, sold under sin. For that which I do... I allow not. Now, did you just get that? Now, connect your, your, your head to these words because he starts to go back and forth with this battle that is raging within. He says again, for that which I do, I allow not. I'm telling myself I shouldn't be doing this. And then he goes on and he says, for what I would, what I want to do, that do I not. But what I hate That do I. Okay, how many of you have ever found yourself in that situation? How many of you could look back on a week past and say, there were things that I have done this last week that that if truth be told, I did some things that I hate. And the things that I want to do, the things that I love, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing. Now he goes on, Let's, let's jump down to verse number 18. For I, know that is, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will, the desire, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do." Now, he's going to continue to just expand and expound on this, but he's saying, I'm finding myself in this battle, and it is internal. There are things that I don't want to do that I'm doing. There are things I want to do that I'm not doing. There is a battle that is raging. Have you ever identified with the Apostle Paul? So so what is his conclusion? Look down a little bit further at verse number 24. Notice the, the raw aspect of this language and the apostle Paul says, oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. As we start to enter this section of Romans chapter seven, Paul begins with the realization that sin is no longer his master. Now, we do need to continue to just reiterate in our minds, sin is no longer the one that he has to answer to. It has no more, in a sense, legal bearing in his life. But it does remain, while it's no longer his master, it does remain a very powerful enemy. Often this passage is presented in extremes, and so we're we're going to at least acknowledge that. This passage we're looking at today, it's oftentimes presented in one of two different extreme fashions. It seems to be sometimes people are saying that, that this is a believer that is living with the recognition that he's doing bad things, but that's just the way it is. If you walk out of this service today by saying, well, you know, I guess I'm just gonna have to come to terms with, I do some bad things and I don't wanna do those things, but oh well, that's not what he's saying. Don't use Romans chapter seven to say, well, I guess I'm just going to come to terms with. I know there's a battle, but we're just going to uh, we're just going to kind of shake hands and have this friendly truce because nothing's going to change. That's not what the apostle Paul's saying, but it is what at times people try to convince themselves of. The, the other extreme is that some people are saying, "Hey, I'm a I'm a Christian, and I have to completely come to the place where I have attained what we might call sinless perfection." That because this battle, I'm I'm recognizing it, but I'm gonna get to the place where I have finally dealt this final blow to the flesh and I no longer have this battle within. That is also not the case. You say, well, why not? Because the flesh of a Christian is no better than the flesh of the lost. Its ability to rear its ugly head remains with us till death do us part what you brought in today to this service what you are living with right now at this very moment is irredeemable flesh so someday this flesh is going to be made completely new and at that point there is no longer this continuing struggle Paul is about to reveal in this passage the realities of the believer's life, and that is all believers. In fact, you may see this passage not as the battle that young believers face, but the battle that all believers face. Even one who has grown in his walk with God, one who has become increasingly aware of what we refer to the, the same way as scripture refers to it, and that is the exceeding sinfulness of sin. In fact, in verse number 15, Paul acknowledges that, okay, the law, there's something spiritual about the law. He, he says it very clearly, verse number 14, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual. Verse number 16, he says, I consent unto the law that it is good. Well, what, what is he saying? He's saying that there can be some frustration that comes when our recognition of the goodness of the law becomes an expectation that the law will make us holy. Now, please get this. Paul is acknowledging, hey, the law, there is a spiritual work of the law. It's defining something that, oh, if if a person's walking spiritually, they're doing those things. But he's also saying the law is never going to be that which makes you spiritual. The law may point out what spirituality looks like, but how devastating it is. In fact, how repulsive it is when a believer begins to act like I can use the law to make me spiritual and I'm gonna see if I can't make the law to make you spiritual as well. Paul's at least acknowledging, hey, I I recognize the spiritual aspect of the law, but it can't make you spiritual. It can only point out what spirituality looks like. Most of us would, by our nature, want to outline this passage with these two simple points. First, there are some that are good, and that includes me. Okay, so hey, let's start it with this. Uh, um, there are some people that are good, and I want to be on the good side of the equation. And then we would also say there are some who are wretched, but that doesn't include me. Now, now there's some that are good. I want to be in that group. There are some that are wretched. But that does not include me. Let's see how the Holy Spirit directs the Apostle Paul to unpack this important truth spiritually. We're gonna start out today by looking at what we're gonna call the confusion. The confusion. There does seem to be something in this passage that we look at and we say, the more I read it, the more I study it, the more I try to internalize it, the the more confused I become. Again, look at verse number 19, Romans chapter seven. Look in your Bible, Romans chapter seven, verse number 19. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. You know, as we begin in this text, it's important to acknowledge that this is the confession of what I believe to be a mature believer. Now, let me say that again, and this is a really important part that should permeate the entire message. We could spend a lot of time addressing this very uh, uh, important position as to who's speaking here. I, I believe we're talking about the Apostle Paul in present tense. He's not looking back over the years saying, you know, when I first was saved, this battle was raging. I think we're looking at the, the, the voice of a mature believer. Paul recognizes the fact that our old flesh is still intact. Yes, we serve a new master, are no longer indebted to the old man. In fact, that authority of the old master has died. However... The pull of that old life is still alive and well. It will not be reduced, diminished, or done away with until we finally put off this mortal flesh. Paul absolutely taught that we have a new birth, but he never taught that this would mean no battle. So yes, I'm born again in Christ, but that doesn't mean that the battle has Uh, come to a place of of ceasing, it actually means the battle has just begun. Years ago, I remember hearing one of our pastors here at Campus Church explain this, this situation that had happened to him when he trusted Christ. The pastor's name is Jim Shetler. And I can remember Pastor Shetler telling about when he was saved at a youth retreat at age 12. So the the speaker had presented the gospel. He was unsaved. And at the age of 12, Jim Shetler came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, as a 12-year-old, he was saved. He was really thankful. In fact, when he trusted Christ, there was not only this actual transaction that took place. He passed from death to life. There was also this emotional event that took place. He was moved like, this is what Jesus did for me. He felt different. Now, now, you might not say that, you might say that that's not what happened to me. That's okay. But, but he just said, wow, something really, truly, genuinely happened. And I felt it. Well, after he was saved, he's at a youth retreat and, and he's 12 years old and there's guys out there playing football and he wanted to go play football with the guys. So he went out there and he said, I'm, I'm 12 years old. You know, these are all older guys. They're playing football, but I'm on one of the teams. And, and he said, every time we'd huddle up, I'd say, hey, pass the ball to me. I'm open, nobody's guarding me. He says, well, nobody's guarding me because I'm 12 and they don't care about a 12-year-old, you know. But he said, pass the ball to me. Every time I'm going back, I'm open, pass the ball to me. He said, finally, one time, they said, okay, Jimmy, this one's for you. I'm passing the ball to you. You take off, head to the end zone, the ball's coming to you. He says, I'm so excited so, you know, down, set, hut. The ball's hiked. He says, I just take off and nobody's guarding me. Just like I said, the quarterback's back. He said, he threw this pass and it was perfect. He said, I can see the whole play unfold in my mind. And as that spiral's coming to me, it's coming perfectly to me. I'm standing in the end zone. I reach out my arms to cradle that thing in the bread basket And and when it hit me, the ball bounced off my chest and fell onto the ground. And he said, I'm not kidding. The first thing I thought about is, did I truly just get saved? He says, I, I had this experience like, here comes the ball. I'm, I'm going to catch the ball, and the ball falls out. He's like, oh, did I really get saved? And you know, the point he was trying to make with a 12 year old's mind is I thought that something must have happened to every part of me when I got saved. I thought that my flesh must be different now. So I'm going to be a better football player because I am now truly saved. Listen, should a Christian expect. On a, on a court, I mean, seriously, do you ever play ball against other Christians? You ever have a basketball game against two Christian teams? Everybody on the team is saved. Is it just come down to whose prayer life is better regarding who's going to win the game? Like your cheerleaders are over there on the side and they're just praying like, we got really godly cheerleaders, okay? Is that what it comes down to? Or is there something just playing out and out physical like, oh yeah, that guy's, you know, seven foot two and they're going to they're gonna win the game no matter how much the guys that are four foot 11 pray, you know. Sometimes we start to think that we, we have to have some spiritual aspect to my fleshly condition. And there is some confusion regarding this. What Paul is helping us to understand is that the perfect good that he desires is unattainable in this life. There's only one perfect good and that is God. And you are still bound in an ongoing battle. You may experience victory over sin, but that does not mean that you will never have ongoing temptation to sin. Jesus understood and taught the reality of this truth. In fact, he was speaking to one that we call the rich young ruler. And and in this passage, Jesus said unto him in Mark 10, 18, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one That is God. Actually, what Jesus is acknowledging here is that he is God and only God is good. For you and me, evil is always present with us. Paul will go on to deliver the wonderful news of walking in the spirit. We'll address that when we get to Romans chapter eight. He's gonna teach the reality of walking in the power of the spirit while living in the presence of sin. But here he reveals the reality of this life that sin is always present with us. Paul does help us understand that a true believer comes to the knowledge that even our sin shows the purity of the law. The world continually attempts to destroy or to remove the law, but not a true believer He accepts the law, he acknowledges its goodness, the spiritual work of it, and he recognizes that our own sin proves the goodness of the law. Again, Romans 7, 15, 16, for that which I do not allow, um, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. He's saying, I know in my own heart in my own life, what the law officially says, my own mind testifies to the truth. I know what I am doing is wrong. Well, that's the confusion. Let's go to the confession. Paul now comes to this place where he says, okay, I'm I'm going to acknowledge the reality of me. And I believe he's making this acknowledgement as a mature believer. Look at verse number 24. Romans seven, verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, here's an important note. In fact, you might wanna note this or underline it, highlight it in your Bible. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Here's what he does not say. He does not say, oh, wretched man that I was. Oh, wretched man that I was. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. How different this statement is from so many that we try to convince ourselves of. We say, oh, wretched parents that I had. Oh, wretched family that I grew up in. Wretched friends, oh, wretched husband or wife, oh, wretched church, oh, wretched boss, oh, wretched culture that I live in. How easy it is to look around us and see the depravity of the world in which we are existing. But the mature believer begins to understand first his own wretchedness and actually confesses it. He sees the ongoing battle between the old flesh and the new man. And this battle will never be resolved until we finally step out of this body of sin and into eternity. One man said it this way He makes clear that only his members, that is, his fleshly body, is a prisoner of the law of sin. That lingering part of his unredeemed humanness is still sinful and consequently makes warfare against the new and redeemed part of him, which is no longer sin's prisoner, and is now its avowed enemy. Let the battle begin. This does create a major battle within every true believer. The only answer to this dilemma is an honest confession of the problem and an absolute dependence on the person of Jesus Christ. It acknowledges how very poor we truly are. Now, there are two primary Greek words that are used for the word poor in the New Testament. And uh, the first word is penehros, penehros. It, it means one who has very little. Like, oh boy, they don't have very much. They're, they're very poor. They have very little. Do you remember the widow who had two mites? And the Bible says that she was very poor, but she gave all that she had, the two mites. That's the word teneros. It means she has very little. She is poor. But there's another word that is used for poor in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus is, is teaching at this point where we, we, we refer to this as the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 3, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't use the word peneros here. He doesn't use the word blessed are they that have very little, but they're using it well. He uses another word here for poor, ptohos, ptohos. This is the word that means there are those who have absolutely nothing. They they, they don't bring anything to the table. They are not this pentecost, like, oh, they've got got a few mites. Hey, you contribute what you have, and then I'll make up the rest. That's not what he's saying. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying, blessed are those who come recognizing their own spiritual bankruptcy. Like, God, I I come to you, and I I can't say I'm going to give this, and you make up the rest. I'll do my best, and you take my best, and then you add something to it. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you know, when, when he's teaching this passage of scripture, notice how the people go away. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 26, verse 28, it says, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. The word astonished means they are absolutely shocked. They are mentally stunned. They're dumbfounded. They are amazed. Like, like. I can't bring anything. Blessed are those who are absolutely bankrupt. And Jesus says, yes, don't don't bring anything to the table. Recognize who you are and recognize what I have to offer. It seems to be the the same thing that even in the Old Testament, King David, I mean, King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, it seems to be the same thing that David understands about the limits of the law. He's referring to the law of sacrifice. God had put several laws regarding what do do I bring and what do I offer to you? And notice what David says about the law of sacrifice. Psalm 51, beginning in verse number 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, thou wilt not despise. What David is saying here is he's saying, God, I I recognize who I am. I come with an honest confession. It's not just going through the motions of something. He gets to the motive of something and I see who I am before you. What kind of confession are you willing to make before God? We're a bit shocked maybe even uncomfortable with Paul's confession. Oh, wretched man that I am. His is the confession of one that as he sees God more clearly, he continues to see himself more accurately. It is Isaiah's testimony who pronounces a woe on everyone except himself. You read up through through the first five chapters in the book of Isaiah and Isaiah is throwing them out like they're candy at a parade. Woe unto you, woe unto you, one after another, after another, until he puts on the brakes in Isaiah chapter six. And now Isaiah himself stands before the holiness of God. And in Isaiah verse six, verse number five, he says, woe is me, for I am undone. Why? Because his eyes had seen the king. Think about how this realization works itself out in Paul's life. The more he matures, the the greater his sin. The more he grows in Christ, the more, in a sense, wretched he sees his own unredeemed flesh. Earlier in Paul's ministry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle, Okay, so, okay, he's getting like, hey, don't, don't, don't put me to the front of the line. I'm the least of the apostles. Then a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. Hey, listen, there's, there's a body of believers, the saints. I'm less than the least of the saints. But not long before the apostle Paul dies, the apostle Paul here says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. But Paul begins by saying, hey, I'm the least of the apostles. He starts with a group of 12. Believers, apostles, I'm the least of the Apostles. He continues to grow and mature. He continues to see the wretchedness of his own sin. And now he says, hey, listen, of all the saints, I'm the least of the least of the saints. And not long before the apostle Paul dies, he says, listen, there, there's one position I will claim. And I'm the chief. And that is, I am the chief of sinners. O oh, wretched man that I am. Don't say that the Apostle Paul is saying that early on in his faith. I think when we start to study the Apostle Paul, we see that the closer Paul grows in his walk with God, the more wretched his sin actually becomes. Do you know, you and I oftentimes make friends with our sin at the expense of the friend of your soul. And we are saying, I I think I can do this. I think this is okay for me to do. Yeah, 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 I'm living under grace. But we know the law, even in our own heart, let alone the law of God has convinced us. And there is some battle inside that we're trying to say doesn't exist. Do you know how this all concludes? The conclusion we see in Romans chapter seven, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, what else can your flesh do? I am supposed to live filled with the spirit of God and submitting to the same because my flesh will do what it can only do. There's nothing spiritual about our fleshly nature. He says, I have to live to the spirit while I am living in the flesh. The conclusion, Paul did not cry out, what will deliver me? Well, okay, we got to ask the question, what's going to deliver me? You know, many are looking for the what to deliver them. What, what, what's going to deliver me? I, hey, hey, pastor, give me something that'll deliver me from the power of this sin. Some are looking for the right spiritual sequence. In other words, they're looking for this little formula, like help, help me with this formula. And if I do step one, step two, step three, if I do this for 40 days, if I do this for, I'm gonna have the right sequence. And Paul says, no, no, this is not a spiritual sequence. Some are looking for a new spiritual experience. Like I, I want some experience with Christ. I, I want some, you know, really emotional thing that just captivates me and, and it propels me to the next level spiritually. Some are looking even for a demonic spiritual deliverance. And how convenient it is for some of us to, to pray for demonic deliverance. You know, oftentimes today there are those who say, you are bound by the the, the the demon of finance. And if you'll if you'll support this ministry, we'll pray that you'll be released from the demon of money, and then you'll you'll start to have riches and blessing and Some say you're bound by the the demon of some sin that just keeps pulling you back into. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, oh, wretched demon that plagues me, oh, wretched man that I am. All too often we pray for deliverance from demonic activity when that is only an excuse but not the real problem. Maybe we should be praying that God would forgive our compulsive spending, that he would forgive our lack of personal discipline that he would allow us to see ourselves for what we truly are and help us to walk in the power of his spirit Paul did not say what will deliver me Paul said who will deliver me oh wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from this body of death in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 the Bible tells us about the who who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. When Paul uses the expression, the body of death, it's reported that while it was grotesque and cruel, it was one of the forms of punishment in Paul's day. And many believe that when he said, who shall deliver me from this body of death, he's actually referring to the practice where they would take severe criminals and actually bind their body to that of a corpse, hand to hand, arm to arm, leg to leg, body to body. And as the, the body would continue to degrade, so would the body of the living. And the Apostle Paul sees this battle as such a severe battle that he asks the question and conjures up in the mind of those at the church at Rome, who shall deliver me from this body of death, this battle that I find myself bound in? And he answers his own question, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you continually attempting to use the law for something that God never intended? It can't make you spiritual. It can point out where we are not walking with God. It can't bring us to the place where we begin that walk. Jesus brings us to that place. Further, you will be ill prepared for Romans chapter eight, unless you acknowledge who you are in Romans chapter seven. In fact, the more mature we are in Christ, the more we see ourselves in Romans chapter 7. Maybe for some today, we should simply come and humble ourselves in broken contrition before God and simply admit who we are, and that is, O wretched man that I am.